to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that maybe never got enough attention when they first came out. Maybe when they came out, they were big award winners and they were all over the place, but nobody seems to talk about them anymore. I'm Matthew Shuckman. I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And it is my honor, my privilege, my absolute, our absolute treat. I'm being so egotistical right now, but it is our privilege, absolute treat, etc., to have Eddie Muller host of Turner Classic Movies, Noir Alley, and author of the newly revised and expanded edition of Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir, on over to, on our show, Over to Rentals, to talk about The Silent Partner. And, oh, wow. I You know, to talk about noir as, like, as a whole in essence, because the man's a wealth of knowledge. But yes, but yes, today's, today's picture is The Silent Partner. Which I mean, Matthew, do you? I I can't remember if this was if this was even a pick on either of our oh, lists. No. Or it just oh, a, it's on my list. Silent Partner. Okay, it was your list. So please, Matthew, in the spirit of our show, do the honors and, and explain to the audience at home the Silent Partner and and well, we'll leave it to Eddie to to qualify whether it is noir or not because he does kind of have a knack for that thing. Well. Silent Partner is a 1978 Canadian film directed by Daryl Duke, written by Curtis Hansen, who made a lot of different films. A lot of people are going to either know him from one of two, usually though, which well, actually one of three, which would be Wonder Boys, of course, LA Confidential, and uh, Eight Mile uh, for a lot of people who, you know, that was what he did after LA Confidential, if I remember correctly. Actually, I can't remember, Nemi went Wonder Boys then. After Wonder Boys. Yeah, it was yeah, okay, then Eight Mile. Wonder Boys, Eight Mile. But it, it is a, what we'll say, a thriller over everything else. It stars Elliot Gould as a bank teller who kind of gets wind of a robbery before it happens and uses it to his advantage and screws over the robber who is played by the terrifying Christopher Plummer. And there's yeah. a lot of different, there's a lot of different uh, love affairs going on as well throughout the movie. Um, it is based on a novel, a, a Danish novel called Think of a Number, which also had a Danish film in 1969 made. But I actually never saw it. It's kind of hard to get your hands on it. But this is a movie that I saw. It's like I was really young. My father was like, "You gotta see this thing," and I've been obsessed with it for a long time, way before it became what you can consider now a cult classic. I think because I think it, think it took its time to really reach that. But before we get into anything else, we should say right now, spoilers ahead, probably when we talk to Eddie, because you can't oh, talk I about this movie without talking about the specifics. No, no, no. So if you, the good folks at home, want to watch The Silent Partner on your own, you can head to Canopy, which is a free streaming service that you can access through your library. Uh, I believe it's a credit-based system. You get a certain number of credits a month. The Silent Partner is available there for you to stream. Uh, if we can entice you further, John Candy's in it, the late, great John Candy. And one of his it's first roles. <laughs> yes, and he, it's just, uh, if you like noir, if you just like a well-told story, with a menacing, menacing Christopher Plummer. Go watch The Silent Partner right now. Don't let anybody tell you anything because that's exactly how I went into this. Matthew literally told me, you literally asked me, it's like, what do you know about this movie? Like, I don't know much. And he's like, good, good, just go into it. And <laughs> okay, so ladies and gentlemen, I think we're about to let Eddie Mueller into the room and we're gonna talk about The Silent Partner on Overdue Rentals. Welcome to Overdue Rentals. It is an honor to have you here uh, promoting your new book, Dark City. Well, the new and revised book, Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. How are you today, sir? 
I'm good. I'm good. I'm very happy that the book is doing extremely well. And uh, I'm, I just couldn't be more pleased by that. I'm very, uh, I can speak for both of us, I believe, when I say we're very happy to have our hands on this book because film noir is something that I think most of the public is familiar with. They just don't know it or they just don't know the true history of it. And it's nice to have this new addition to fall back on. Uh, what prompted the revision and expansion of the book, which uh, if I read correctly, was originally printed in 1998? Correct, that is correct. Um, I learned, so, it's funny, you know, you write a book about a subject and you, you sort of have to come off like something of an expert, which I don't know if I was or not, but I was certainly enthusiastic when I wrote the book in 1998. And I had a few things specific to that book that I thought separated it from other, you know, the treatment of the subject was different than the way a lot of other books had done it. Uh, but that led to my being able to program film festivals. The people said, oh, we, we really like the approach in this book. Can we do a festival based on it? And then when I started to ask for the movies that I had written about, I learned that a lot of them you couldn't get any longer. And, and so uh, out of that came my decision to create a foundation to re you know, rescue and restore movies that had disappeared. And then lo and behold, like 10 years into that, I realized someday I got to revise this book because I've just learned so much additional material to add to the history that I had first conceived um, that it was, you know, it just had to happen. And so it, I'm, uh, I'm kind of glad it took 20 years because I, you know, the book's been out two months and I already feel like I need to start working on a third edition because because there's other movies that I'm I'm just figuring out about now, you know, like, oh, this needs to be in the heist section and this one needs to be in the newspaper section. And, you know, it, it, my work will never be done. <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting thing too, because for traditional audiences who, who only really know what's advertised for them through TV or radio, let's say, even back in the, early 80s, late 70s, maybe, while there were still big, well-known films such as like Maltese Falcon or The Big Sleep. I think a lot of people, when they hear film noir, they only think it maybe it started with Chinatown or something like that. They're still so unaware of that back history that we're still, we're all still dredging up stuff that maybe we all didn't know about. Yeah. I mean, it always amazes me when I... <laughs> when I'm online and I see uh, 10 greatest film noir movies ever. You know, here's the list. And it like goes back to 1983 or something. <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. So yes, I do feel that uh, my, my work is needed in that regard. But it is kind of interesting because I am one of these people who I get the, the uh, idea that a lot of people have that it's, it's set in a very specific time. Like film noir is something about the 1940s, early 1950s. And that's it. You know, it yeah. was a it was an organic artistic movement, as I call it. And and that's how everybody relates to it. You know, it's fedoras and everybody's drinking all the time and smoking and, the, you know, slinky femme fatales and all that. Um, I get that. And that's largely what my book is about. But I also make it clear that I see a continuum 
and how those films influenced future generations of filmmakers and that even today it's still going on in a different form. The films don't look the same, but the films are about the same things. Uh, and, and it's an interesting way of kind of looking at the culture, American history, through sort of this noir lens, uh, because it sort of takes American history as a crime story. I mean, my, my buddy James Elroy has always said that, you know, American history is a crime story. And, uh, you know, these films sort of reflect that. And that's kind of funny because I got to see uh, Reminiscence recently. And that is probably, I, I think Lisa Joy did something really interesting with that because she lands a noir film, but it's very much, you know, it's still sci-fi. It's kind of Westworld adjacent. Like she creates this whole mythos in the future that it kind of links back to, you know, there's there was this huge war and, you know, you've got Hugh Jackman as a war vet sort of sniffing around a mystery, but it's not just as simple as, oh, he's a detective and he's been scorned. It's like, no, it's, it's this really interesting love story at the center, but it feels very noirish to its core. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very intrigued to see that. And I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, noir is interesting because in the classic sense, they're mostly crime stories, but the, the noir feel has been used in other genres as well. So you see a lot of, you know, there's a horror noir, Western noir, sci-fi noir. I mean, generally it's sort of genre stuff, you know, uh, the crime genre, the Western genre, the, you know, sci-fi genre. And, and you, there, there have always been examples of that. Like if you go back to the fifties, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a science fiction movie that feels a lot like a noir film you know, Pursued is a Western that feels like a noir film. You know, there are war movies like Hell is for Heroes that feels like a noir film. It, it just has to do with the way people approach the material and, and that there's a compromised protagonist many times. And of course, you know, uh, TCM, on TCM recently, I did a neo-noir series and I showed Blade Runner as one of the films. So, you know, obviously that that movie was entirely inspired by the original noir films and just put this futuristic spin on it and friends of any coil if i remember correctly oh yeah i'm not never leaving that one out i love that movie <laughs> so so much like i recently discovered it i think it was last year i just rented the disc from netflix because i had heard you know bob mitchum a noir movie and it's always like okay i'm gonna try this and i just walked away like wow i'm i'm kind of sad no one showed me showed this to me before yeah, but it's great that you finally get to see it. That's what's great about movies. You know, they don't, as long as they don't get lost, uh, that one wasn't really at risk. But, uh, yeah. you know, there are a lot of other films, though, that do kind of slip through the cracks. I'm, I'm really happy that that film, and, you know, when you watch Eddie Coyle, you can really see the influence, uh, not just that film had, but that George Higgins, the guy who wrote that, the effect he had on making crime so authentic, like these are the these are the people who who perpetrate low level crimes, you know, gun runners and guys doing you know cheap bank robberies and stuff. Uh, it's a criminal way of life, and that movie captures it so beautifully. 
and and it feels like stuff that you would see later on cable tv and stuff but it was made you know in the early 70s so it was very much a trend-setting film i think you know film noir the way we're talking about it too not the way we're talking about it, but the way you say people see it you know the old hard-boiled detective you know 40s 50s you know big city new york chicago and and it may have been started off as like almost an american kick but it's not just also an American style. I mean, French noir, all this stuff exists. And and wondering where that also needs, you know, because we have to branch out and discover all these things that may be lost as well, that is there an unlimited wealth of these things to kind of drudge back up? Um, I don't know. I, there's more. I don't know if it's unlimited. Uh, but, you know, that what you're talking about is something that really fascinates me, that sort of cross-pollination of cultures like they're all doing crime movies and they all feel like noir, but there are specific things about different cultures that, you know, they bring to it. So yeah. you see something like um, Rififi, the French film from 1955 that was directed by Jules Dassin, who is an American, right? And when that film was released to, and cinephiles saw it in the 1970s, they didn't know at that point that Jules Dassin was an American. They thought that he was a French guy and like, wow, look at how the French did this great caper movie. And it was like, see, that's where you get all that fabulous history of Dassin being blacklisted and moving to Europe. And, and Jean-Pierre Melville, who was going to direct Rififi, said, no, get Jules Dassin to do it because he can't make a film in America anymore and he should be directing this movie because he loved the noir films that Dassin had made mm. in America. But the other thing is, is Rififi was written by a guy named Auguste Le Breton who was totally inspired by the asphalt jungle, right? So all of this stuff feeds, and, and Le Breton was like a low level criminal in Paris. He, he was like the real thing who saw the asphalt jungle and said, wow, this is great. You know, I want to tell a story like that. And then he wrote this caper movie that ended up being, you know, arguably the greatest heist movie of all time. And, and then it just feeds back on itself. Then Americans are like, oh, we're inspired by Rififi. <laughs> and they don't know that like, well, it was American movies that inspired that one, right? And, and you see this all the time. And, and like I've, I've restored a lot of films from Argentina and there's movies there that are clearly inspired by American films that where they're, they're based on books by American writers. Uh, and, it, and it goes both ways. That's the thing that's kind of yeah. fascinating. I think, uh, you know, Americans can be very ethnocentric thinking that, you know, we created everything that's good. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's fascinating to realize how much of this stuff exists in other cultures. And, you know, uh, we obviously have taken our fair share from England and France yeah. uh, in terms of all this stuff and then spin it back out. And then, you know, they're doing it in Spain and Germany and Italy and Sweden and Japan and South America. Uh, th this is really where my great interest in continuing interest in noir is to see how it plays out all around the world, not, not just in the Hollywood product. I'm also interested in the idea of where earlier, maybe even less film influence came in because when I think about it, you know, if you granted, again, a lot of people are going to think noir has got to be 
a detective and a PI specifically and so on and so forth. But when I think of like Kafka work and I think of stuff like the trial, I, I think that's almost like a proto-noir in, in a way. And I'm wondering where the literature from like those kind of things have built up into what we have now in film. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I mean, you've, you read my book, so you know that I have a very, uh, you know, literary approach to this and that I see the literary influences very strongly in, in how Hollywood approached this subject matter. In some ways, this is an oversimplification, but in some ways, I think if there's anything that's particularly American about film noir, it is the language, the way a crime story is told. That's, that's what America really gave to this more so than the visual style which is very european influence you can see it in the filmmakers who came to hollywood and really brought that shadowy approach to uh, art direction and cinematography um but yeah definitely when you see a lot of the work that's been adapted and you could say well this is kind of a noir i mean you mentioned the trial and kafka but, uh, you know, even stuff like Theodore Dreiser's uh, American Tragedy that was adapted as A Place in the Sun, an argument could be made that A Place in the Sun is, you know, made in 1950 is a noir film. You could argue that Fal William Faulkner's Intruder in the Dust, which was made in 1949, that's kind of a detective story and a, you know, wrongly accused man. I mean, it's bigger than that because it's a, you know, it's a racial thing you know it's about a black man accused of a crime he didn't commit but it definitely has a noir quality to it that's all kind of part and parcel of of that artistic movement i talk about mm. you know by which i mean there was no there was no compelling economic or artistic reason that these films had to be made particularly economic it's like no studio was making a fortune on them right but all the artists decided they wanted to get involved in doing this. And I'm talking about writers, directors, cameramen, and actors, which is the really important overlooked one, is that actors wanted to play the bad guy, right? I mean, Bogart was going back and forth constantly between being the hero, you know, in Casablanca and being the bad guy in movies like Conflict and uh, the two Mrs. Carols. And, and you just, you know, you see that all the time and it, you know richard widmark who became a movie star playing a bad guy you know that doesn't happen too often but that was part and parcel of this whole noir era so it's uh it's really interesting my book focuses on like why did this happen when it happened but the, also interesting is that i think it continues on to today you see it influencing other people's work you know like chris nolan the cone brothers uh, David Lynch, Th these people know they're noir and they, uh, it, it's very malleable and they work a lot of these ideas into their own films. And you even got uh, Ryan Johnson with Brick and then even uh, Scott Frank doing films like The Lookout or uh, even just adapting out of sight. Like, and yeah. Elmore Leonard is another one of those writers who was just very noirish, but he had a lot of cheek added into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, well, he kind of, um, you were talking about Eddie Coyle, you know, Elmore Leonard had written so many Westerns in the early part of his career, 
and then he just completely switched genres and started writing crime. And I just feel that those George Higgins books, like Eddie Coyle, were probably an influence on Leonard because, you know, it, they're all dialogue. And Elmore Leonard became the greatest dialogue writer in crime fiction. And, you know, he became an effortless storyteller. And, you know, all that stuff is fantastic. And then, you know, uh, look at uh, Soderbergh's new one, you know, the No Sudden Move. That's clearly um, what I love about the way people are doing noir now is they're taking the, what they love about the traditional movies, you know, from the 40s and 50s, and they're rethinking them with new protagonists because you see a lot of these stories now feature female protagonists. Uh, you know, with it's like, I'm going to make this movie in Detroit in 1955 or whatever it is, but I'm going to give the lead role to this guy that in 1955 would have been a character on the edge of the frame because nobody paid attention to the African-American characters in 1955. So it's like that guy's going to be the central character, right? Like what, what is a low level criminal like African-American criminal in Detroit in 1955? And how does he make his way through all the, the white crooks, you know, the, the Ray Liotas and all those guys. It was, that was, that was really a fun movie. And it was, you were clearly seeing Soderbergh's, um, I don't want to say his debt to noir, but his, uh, his enjoyment of the genre, you know, he had fun with it. Well, like we're saying, there's, there's so many things, again, even now modern, that doesn't have to stick specifically to the, you know, the building blocks of all this. I mean, yes, I, I'll, I'll use Children of Men as an example. Yes, P.D. James wrote a lot of mystery and the book, even though completely different than the film, was, you know, kind of the sci-fi mystery, but that's a neo noir in my mind where people don't see it that way. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, it's a very elastic term. <laughs> and I will be honest with you, I, when I talk about this stuff, some people love that you can see it everywhere and some people get very annoyed. Hmm. You know, hmm. like it is what it is and just talk about it for what it is. You know, and when people say to me, how many noir movies are there? Am I getting close to seeing them all? <laughs> I, I hate to break the news to you, but, you know, that the description is so elastic that you're, you're never going to see see it all, you know. Uh, but it that doesn't bother me in any way, because I find that the fact that it's in the eye of the beholder leads to really interesting debates about everybody's own interpretation as to what noir is. And that debate keeps interest percolating. It keeps it very high, you know, like, I, did you think this film is noir or don't you, you know? And there is no right answer, but it's weird because now, because I have a TV show and I've written a book, you know, I, I'm now called upon to like settle bets. <laughs> you know, is this movie a noir or isn't it? You know, well, Eddie said so. Well, Eddie doesn't know what he's talking about and blah, blah, blah. You know, it le leads to more fights than settling bets, I think. But yeah, yeah okay. But that's you, kind of fun. Yeah, okay. He just hosts Noir Ali on Turner Classic Movies. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't have a whole series of videos where he has debated whether a film is noir or not, which I always love seeing those pop up. Well, it is weird because, 
you know, we shoot those things, those noir or not promos. You know, when I'm in Atlanta and recording the show, it's like, okay, hey, Eddie, uh, you know, 20 minutes till lunch. Can we shoot a bunch of noir or nots? And, <laughs> and liter literally, I just stand there and they throw titles at me and I like talk for 30 seconds as to whether I think it's noir or not. And it, it's like, I'm sure there's going to be cases where one time I say it is and another time I say it isn't. <laughs> that could very well happen. So, uh, you know, that's what I mean. It is a very malleable thing. You know, this week Vertigo is totally noir, <laughs> you know, and maybe a year from now, who knows, I may change my mind and it it's like, well, you know what, I'm thinking about it differently now. But that that happens, you know, that happens. You you love a film when you're like 20 years old and then you see it when you're 40 and it's like, yeah. what was I thinking? You know, and the same the same thing can happen, obviously, just with your interpretation of whether something is noir or not. Is there is there one thing that everybody claims is, but you know isn't? Okay, I, I'll tell you my example. And this is a, a little bit of a smart alecky answer but I do have reasons for believing it. There are people who will put like, The Big Sleep has to be in the top five noir films of all time. And I will argue that The Big Sleep is closer to a screwball comedy than it is to a film noir. Uh, it, looks, it looks like noir, it feels like noir, but underneath the hood, it's Howard Hawks like making I was a male war bride or something because Howard Hawks is not a noir director. He is yeah. not because men in Howard Hawks movies are infallible. Right. And, and failure is a huge part of what noir is all about. Right. There is no moment in the big sleep where you think that Philip Marlowe is going to fail at what he's doing or, you know, and, or the women throwing themselves at him, you know, and all this stuff. Uh, so it's a very amusing movie that all but defines the look of noir, but it doesn't have that noir soul to me. Not like The Killers is a film noir, or Double Indemnity is a film noir, or uh, Crisscross or The Asphalt Jungle. Those to me are like noir. Nobody gets out alive, you know. <laughs> the Big Sleep is like a very, very... Uh, it's all the noir window dressing, but at heart, it feels like something else. <laughs> so I guess now it comes time to ask that big question of Mr. Eddie Muller, the <laughs> silent partner, noir or not? Oh, I totally think of it as a noir. Yeah. <laughs> there we go, gentlemen. Yes. If you think of like strangers on a train or something like that as, as film noir, then you have to think of the silent partner as a film noir too, because, you know, one of the definitions I always use about noir is they're tales of ordinary people learning what they're capable of. And that's certainly the story of the silent partner, right? Where the Elliot Gould miles realizes that he's as much a criminal as the criminal mastermind of the film, right? And to me, that's completely noir, despite the fact that it's like set in like gigantic shopping mall in Toronto. And <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, it's so funny too. And like, I don't wanna like, I almost feel that since it was a Canadian based film that maybe that's part of why it didn't, I went to school, I went to film school in Toronto actually. Oh, okay, And cool. even my, even my, uh, my professor John Foote, um, you know, would, would tell you that you know, 
granted, yes, we all know there are plenty of great Canadian films, but like, the Canadian film industry is not anything to be heralded after. Right. And I almost like even know it's got Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer. And at the time SCTV was airing and people were going to notice John Candy in there and, and so on and so forth, right. that maybe that was another reason why it didn't become such a, a big hit because it's an, everybody who's seen the film knows how amazing it is. Nobody says anything bad about it. I just wonder why it never blew up. Um, you know, it's a good question. It, it certainly is a cult film. I mean, people who have seen it love, love that film very much. Um, but partly I think you're right. I mean, there was that thing in the 1970s where I, f I forget what it was called, but there was a economic stimulus thing to get filmmakers to make movies in Canada. And the deal was they had to be, uh, whatever it was, two thirds of the cast and crew yeah. had to be Canadian. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a Curtis Hansen. Uh, well, it's actually based on a book, the name of which escapes my mind, but it was set in Denmark. Think of a number. Think of a number, that's it. And it was actually set in Denmark, right? And then uh, I guess Hansen just had this clever idea of, you know, relocating it uh, to Canada because they knew that it was going to be shot there. And my understanding is he was actually going to direct the film, uh, but then... Uh, took the job doing White Dog, writing the script for White Dog with Sam Fuller. Yeah, wow. Uh, in, instead of doing that. Uh, and Daryl Duke, uh, who you know, had made Payday, which is a great film. And uh, and there you have it. You know, they just shot the thing in Toronto and it was, it's kind of a special movie. There's a lot of, it's one of those great crime movies that you can read so much into you know, in terms of what it's about in the materialism and the money, everybody needing the money to get their dreams, you know, and every everybody in the film is like that, you know, and it's uh, it's really a good script. It's it's funny, too, because I it's a movie that I've I always loved. It's one of these things my father showed me when I was really young. It's like, you've got to see this. And, you know, I became obsessed with it. Like, I didn't know it was a book. I didn't, they actually, they actually made a, a Danish version in 1969 as well called Think of a Number, which I'd never seen. And I, and I actually, it's right. hard to find. I haven't um, seen it either. But what's interesting, and I, and I didn't realize this until getting ready to talk about this too. And I, I don't know how much to believe because unfortunately, almost all the information you can find it always like kind of trickles back to Wikipedia at this point. And, you know, I, there's interviews with Curtis Hansen where he said like, they just wouldn't let him direct it because he was too early in his career. But that Daryl Duke, they actually, the producers apparently, the beheading scene was not in the film. The producers wanted it in the film. Daryl Duke refused to. And they actually bought in apparently Hanson to direct that. That's, that's what I heard as well, yeah. And that's yeah. amazing to me. Yeah, Curtis, uh, you know, he, he would come to my noir festivals in Hollywood. And so we've talked about the film a little bit. And, uh, you know, he was a big noir fan. Oh, my gosh. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the really violent scenes in the movie, uh, I think Curtis did direct those. I don't wow. think Harold Duke was interested in, in including those scenes, you know. But um, Elliot Gould is really good in this film, don't you think? I think he, oh, yeah, he... it's one of, one of my favorite performances of his. I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that everybody in this room has a healthy aff affection for Elliot Gould in general, but just 
this is like so out of his wheelhouse when you think typical Elliot Gould, you just think like sardonic, sarcastic, and like most people would think MASH or maybe even yeah, if you're yeah. thinking Noir Gould, it's long goodbye. Yeah. But like he's just, he gets to be like the small time bank clerk and then he becomes criminal mastermind and lover and like all these changes that Miles goes through and that everybody is is want to highlight saying, wow, you've you've changed Miles. And he's like, is that a, is that a good thing? Yeah, and yeah. What that entails through this, he just plays this so damn brilliantly. And I, I, I'm, I was just, I'm, I'm sad that the first time I heard about this film was after uh, Christopher Plummer's passing, unfortunately. Oh yeah. Popped up on a lot of his, a lot of lists of like, well, what are his best performances? And people were like, even Matthew, before we did the show, he's like, okay, you're going to love this. I'm not to, to how much do you know? I was like, I, I just know he's a piece of work in this. He's like, okay, fine, go watch it. Don't read anything. When, when people ask me to make my top five villains of all time, this is like where people would normally put Darth Vader and stuff like that. I put Christopher Plummer from The Silent Partner. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. That, it's that quiet menace. And then he when he breaks out into those histrionics and the beheading scene and when he beats the teenage prostitute in the beginning. It's it's very very scary, and he he is great in this film. And I love the I love the motivation of the character because you know everybody kind of gets away with it, but he's like pissed that this guy figured out a you know to piggyback yeah. on his crime. And also, it's because of him that we're allowed to root for Miles because if oh this absolutely was, yeah yeah because if it was just Miles doing his thing, it'd be like it'd be more Coen Brothers territory. We're sort of wrestling with the morality of it. But then when you see Rankle and like right from frame one, when you see what he does, it's like, okay, uh, clearly there are worse people in this world and I don't want him to win. Yeah. Anyone yeah, can win exactly. but him. <laughs> so that, you, as you've just stated, that to me uh, emphatically qualifies this film as noir. <laughs> there's a bad guy and then there's a really bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the, the way they're able to it, like even as I've known the film because again I watched it again to prep for, for our talk today I almost forget how quick it has that turn on a dime because you're sitting watching first Christopher Plummer's eyes through like the mail slot which could be very corny if done wrong but it was so chilling and terrifying I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting shakes right now thinking about and a minor it. comedy beat too yeah but then yeah. snap straight into a fish because even though Miles has pulled off his initial plan at that point. You can tell he's clever. All of a sudden, watching him now follow the bad guy, you're like, oh my, what am I in for now? Like, you don't mm -hmm. know where you're going. And it's just so brilliantly done. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and it's, it's a very clever movie. And sometimes I don't like clever movies because it's like, <laughs> is that all there is here? But that that's where the performances are so good because then they provide a little extra depth to the whole thing. So it's not just clever. You really, you really start thinking about what these, what these characters are all about. You can hear the siren. They're coming to, they're coming to get me right now. They're fine. They found out you did something. Now the ride's right. here. <laughs> Conversation's hot. Cheese it. It's the heat. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just, I, I love that. I'm glad you mentioned that mail slot scene because I just love the fact that you've got Elliot Gould barricading himself. So it's still very tense, very like in that movie. But then several times throughout this film, it's not afraid to tip the cards into comedy a little bit, which is not only a great 
tension reliever, you know, building to sort of the tension release. Right. But it's also just very sharp. Like he opens that mail slot and it's like, you get a second's worth of laughter if your humor's just right. And then he starts talking. And then it's just as chilling as him looking across the street from a payphone. Right. Right. Which there's so many movies, especially spy films, where it's like payphone caller, some, even just someone calling you and knowing where you are, knowing your window. That's like surface level thrills. But Christopher Plummer's delivery and then Elliot Gould's response to that, just their caliber totally turns it into something that is that chilling and right. And and you you know as you are clearly pointing out, this is one of the great like cat and mouse films, you know, where uh, the two guys are going back and forth. And it's also a great Christmas movie. I've I've wanted to show this film because <laughs> um, I in San Francisco every year I would do a noir city Christmas, you know, where we would like counter program the season and like give people a film like Blast of Silence or something like that as a Christmas movie, which is just dismal and dark and nihilistic and uh and i've i've never been able to find a really good 35 millimeter print of the silent partner so for yeah. a little a little while there i was thinking like wow is this going to have to be the first color film that i get into restoring uh and, and then fortunately uh things got dealt with and e even though i don't think there's still a good 35 millimeter print that can be shown it has been digitally restored you know it looks like it's supposed to look the the films that all kind of the film prints that all faded and turned to red and stuff which is really <laughs> tragic but um at least it exists digitally yeah i remember going through a couple film courses in college where if we were lucky we did get 35 millimeter prints of like North by Northwest or Strangers on a Train or uh, I forget what other ones, but it, it, it did suffer that same sort of fading where it's like kind of reddish tinge and the sounds okay. Like it's okay enough to watch yeah. it, but you still sit there and just your heart breaks that yeah. preservation has, it, it's something that has come to the forefront through people like yourself and other people that have started foundations but it's still kind of Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Who? But Ooh. it's still, oh, d doesn't he do Marvel movies? <laughs> Funny. We're never going to get him on the show now. Yeah, that's it. Your your chance is over. But it's it um, still feels like it's an uphill battle for preservation on a on a wider scale unless all of a sudden someone, you know, puts it on TV, it becomes a hit and next thing you know, oh, we're going to clean it up for for Blu-ray because everyone wants it now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, I've seen this firsthand in the work that I do. And when I started, you know, trying to rescue films and restore them, which was probably 16 years ago, um, you know, restoring it as a 35 millimeter film made sense. That was the way to go because we knew what the life expectancy was of a film that you restored. You you know, uh, you don't really know that with digital stuff, awesome. and and digital is in such a state of flux. I mean, thirty five millimeter film has been thirty five millimeter film for you know a hundred and whatever years, you know, um, but digital they changed the platform they changed the you know everything so often that you know you could do something 
digitally one year and two years later, it's like, well, what are you going to show that on? Because the technology has, has suddenly changed, you know, it's like going from DVD to Blu-ray. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and, um, and now everything, everybody wants everything 4k, which is not a good thing for older films because they don't survive the transition to 4k that well because the artists back then when they were shooting the queen's palace it was they were photographing uh you know sculpted plywood with gold paint on it and they knew with certain lighting under certain conditions they could fake this and it would look like magnificent opulence you then convert that to digital 4k it looks like painted plywood <laughs> so that's not the coolest way to look at old movies so it's a it's a battle you know it's a battle because if you if we spend all the money to restore something photochemically are we going to be sure that there are that many theaters left that can show it in, in yeah. that print you know so this is a this is a thing that we're going through right now right like should we just restore the films digitally and then make a 35 millimeter print from the digital restoration would that be more economically viable than restoring it as film and then doing a digital transfer of that i mean some cases it's taken away from you the decision is taken away because the existing material is in such a state of deterioration that you sort of have to do it digitally you have to scan it and then make all the corrections digitally because there's no way to restore it photochemically or, or and also you know I, I don't mean to get in the weeds with all this stuff no. but it is kind of fascinating uh you, you know there's there are less and less photochemical laboratories now that can actually do this work because if the demand isn't there for it they're gonna they're not gonna pay for the equipment they're gonna pay for digital equipment instead and the decision is going to be made for you so anyway it's a very interesting thing that i've came to very late in my life and and had a crash course in because you know there are some purists who will say oh you know you're a traitor you restored this film digitally i won't watch it you know i had one guy come to my festival pay for admission and then stand in the back of the theater facing the back wall as a protest to the fact that I was showing the film digitally and not on film. Oh my and it's God. like, I'm glad, I'm glad you have enough of a life <laughs> that you can spend 90 minutes of it staring at a wall in protest. You know, I don't get that. I'm glad he didn't ask for a refund. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, he wanted to, he wanted to make his point, you know, and it was like, okay, whatever. But yeah, you're to your point, it's interesting that uh, we're in an age now where Criterion is starting to march into 4K and Citizen Kane is literally one of, if not the first classic that they're doing, they're using for that approach. Yes, yes, I saw that. Well, that was good. Greg Toland was a good cinematographer to transfer to 4K. You know, he was into the deep focus photography and, uh, you know, it, it should hold up. There, it's also all about who does the work. Right. I mean, there are certain certain people who do these transfers who don't really care and it doesn't look right. And there, then there are people who do the transfers who are artists in their own right, where 
like there's a fellow uh, who works for Sony. His name is Grover Crisp, and he does all of their digital restorations. And Grover, you know, believes in being true to the filmmaker's intention. So when he restored Dr. Strangelove, he went back and read through all of Stanley Kubrick's notes, wow. all the production files. So he would know when he got to a scene, if something was slightly out of focus, he would determine whether that was Stanley Kubrick's intention or not. Because as you know, that film, there's, there's, you know, the stuff in the cockpit and in the, in the bomb bay and all that, there's a lot of handheld stuff that's out of focus. And when you know Stanley Kubrick is not a filmmaker who is going to just say, ah, screw it, just leave it in. It's not what I wanted, but just leave it in. He is not going to do that. So Grover went through and, and like frame by frame, like, is this what his intention was? You know, how much can I sharpen this? And at what point am I sort of violating the director's artistic integrity? And it, it's spectacular. That restoration is absolutely spectacular. It, it's interesting to, to see, though, because no matter how no matter how intense you want to be about it, though, I guess there's going to be certain things that, granted, it's not going to happen for every film, but there's going to be things that may be there that know how 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 well you want to do a job that you're not going to see because it wasn't never intended to be any part of it. Like, I'm not trying to take it away from something more artistic now, but I just learned about the fact that apparently that when filming Goonies, the kid who played Chunk had chicken pox and he never told anybody. And the only reason they found out is because on the 4K revolution, when he does his little dance, you can see his chicken pox now. <laughs> what? Yeah, I just That's learned about crazy. this the other day. Yeah. Okay. How, that was never, I mean, nobody's going to know about that, you know, and granted. But what again, do they do? Yeah, I mean, it's do, not, you, it's not, do you spend the money to go in and like, you know, digitally remove his chicken box or? Well, again, it's one of these things that only fans realize because nobody's really looking at it. Nobody's yeah. caring about yeah. it until some crazy fanatic wants to go like, oh my God, look at how ready, you know? <laughs> well, and also, you know, every, every little correction costs money. Yeah. And, and you do have to make a decision. I mean, I'm, I'm faced with this on a project I'm doing right now. You know, how good do I want this restoration to be? Because I can, I can pay, you know, a lot of money to make it perfect, or I can use that money to restore something else, mm. you know? And, and yeah, it's, it's not like I have a ton of dough to do this. You know, but um, so it's interesting. So shepherding these budgets is a big part of what I do. And like, do I want to make this film absolutely perfect? And then you you ask yourself, what's the market for something like this? You know, because let, let's be realistic. You, you know, you guys know that noir noir is having a bit of a renaissance for various reasons, right? That renaissance does not make noir mainstream <laughs> at, no. at all. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be threatening the Marvel universe with this stuff. You know, so you you do have to ask yourself how, how much are you willing to spend? Uh, yeah. And and it's just like noir itself. That's a very elastic thing. You know, like do I want to just get it out there? to the point where it's not distracting to watch it. There's nothing distracting about it. Or do we want to 
you know, like this movie is so beautifully photographed, we have to spend another $25,000 enhancing it. And, you know, um, it's, it's a challenge. Okay, I, I got way off track there talking about all this technical stuff. That's okay. I can reel us in. I can so reel us in because okay, very good. I, I got to watch The Silent Partner through Canopy, which is a streaming service that you go through your library yeah, and you partner yeah. with like Criterion or they partner with certain right. labels and they get to stream it. But the quality was the quality was okay. I mean, it's clearly watchable. There's still scratches on the print. It's a little bit faded. But I think that lent to the quality for me because again you you really do have to ask yourself what where does where does perfection fit and i don't know if perfection fits in this movie i think clarity fits but i'm perfectly i was perfectly fine with watching this slightly faded like a little warmer maybe than it might have been shown on 35 for the first time right simply because i'm enraptured by what's going on Mm-hmm. And it sort of lends to that atmosphere of this is an imperfect world. These are very imperfect people. The only thing that is definite is the game and how it is played and the rules. Right, oh. right. And it's interesting because what you're describing is sort of the way a lot of mu- you know music people feel about vinyl versus digital, you know, exactly. and film versus digital is sort of the the same thing you know and it's interesting because you know there's a what you were saying about this particular viewing experience of the silent partner is like a lot of people who i'm sure you're familiar with the movie detour from 1945 which is like a classic b noir film you know i might argue that the proper way to watch detour is like at three o'clock in the morning and kind of a beat the hell you know, television version of it, because it's like a nightmare. And when you see Detour completely cleaned up, it's like, I'm glad that exists, but I'm not actually sure that's the optimum experience. (laughs) Um, My copy of Detour is actually like a really, it's like a bargain bin budget, like five in one disc movie thing. And it's the last time I've seen it, actually. I, I don't remember ever seeing it since I first bought that, which is like years ago now. And uh, yeah, it does. It's 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 beat up, and hey, that's that's fine for me. But I was also thinking. I forgot to bring this up earlier, and I was thinking about this now when you were just talking about my watching it on Canopy. Is also like I wonder where maybe the failure in making the Silent Partner a bigger film was that they didn't know how to market it. Like even as it's gone on and gotten its releases, like my DVD copy that I have. If you looked at it, you thought you'd be watching Reservoir Dogs just from the, the cover of it and the poster that they tried to play for it. It does not is it represent the, the movie shadows? Is it one of the shadows and like the red and the it's black like and red like guys in suits with like a gun hanging on one hand. Like, I don't know yeah. what they were going. There's something very similar for the thumbnail on Canopy. And yeah, it was, it almost looked like a cross between Ocean's Eleven and Reservoir Dogs. Well, this is a, this is very often a quandary for films that are unique and kind of clever is that the marketing people do not know how to sell it. Yeah. You know, is because they know, is it an action film? Is it a horror film? You know, what, what, how do we sell this? And this was kind of like a Hitchcock. It's more of a Hitchcock style film than anything else, but it has graphic violence in it that the Hitchcock films didn't have. Uh, you know, it, it's tough. I could see where it was tough. It's like uh, 
I'm trying to think of other films that fall into that, that have had that fate. Like one of my favorites is a movie called Cutter's Way with Jeff Bridges and John Hurd. And that's another film where the studio just didn't have any idea how to sell it. It's not really a detective story because there's no detectives in it. It's kind of a mystery, but it's very slow. There's no violence in it at all after the initial murder. Uh, they, they didn't know what the hook was. And you could see it in the art and everything else. Like they just don't know how to sell this movie. Uh, and and I, I feel that the silent partner was very much like that. They just didn't know how. There's another movie kind of similar that came out a few years after that. Um, well, maybe 10 years after that, uh, that Christopher Plummer was also in called Eyewitness. Do you remember this movie? It was a Peter Yates know. film. Uh, and, you know, Peter Yates, who was great. He did, you know, Friends of Eddie Coyle and Bullet and all this stuff and Breaking Away, which is, you know, probably his most popular film. But he did uh, Eyewitness, I think, right after Breaking Away. And William Hurt is in it. And Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. Uh, Sigourney Weaver plays a, a TV news reporter that William Hurt has a crush on. And then there's these this crime that he gets involved in and you know it, it it's a really really good script it's written actually by the guy who wrote breaking away uh i think his name is steve tesich i think his name was it's good and and uh christopher Plummer is in it i'm not going to say anything more because i i don't want to spoil all right Unlike the silent partner, where you can just come right out and say he's the villain, <laughs> uh, you, you don't want to say that in in this other one. Anyway, but same thing. I thought that was a terrific movie, and it just disappeared. Nobody knows anything about that movie, and it's got big stars in it, you know. So it's not just who knows, you know. Sometimes yeah. the studios just fail. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, you even saw it. You even saw it a couple of years ago when uh, Guillermo del Toro released Crimson Peak, and the studio definitely wanted to put that out as a horror movie. And I think he even said, like, uh, if if they had given me a smaller budget and just were really let the movie be sold as a gothic, a, a gothic romance, yeah. it might have done better than oh, we're going to spend fifty million, but we're going to sell it as a horror movie because people love horror. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'll be very curious to see what happens with his uh, remake of Nightmare Alley, because, you know, I'm I'm sure that the average person is going to hear that title and think it's a horror film, you know, and it and it's not. It's not even close to being a horror film. So, you know, but and, and with his reputation and everything, I think there could be a lot of misassumptions about what that movie is especially after The Shape of Water. So uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, it, it's disappointing. I, I feel for artists who put so much into a film and then it, it just falls flat. Yeah. You know, I, I really like the, uh, the Gloria Graham movie that Annette Bening did, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. And I think Paul McGuigan's a pretty good filmmaker. And they just didn't know how to sell that movie at all, at all. And, and when, and, and that what's too bad about stuff like that is that the business relies on the, the whole award season thing. Yeah. And when she didn't get nominated for any awards for that performance, they just couldn't see how to sell the movie beyond saying 
she's nominated for an award. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it shows a lack of creativity on the marketing side. I, I also want to kind of impart, you know, in the idea that I'm such a I have I'm such a hypocrite in the sense too because I'm the type of person that I don't want to know anything about a movie. I want to go in as blind as I can if, if if possible. Tell me the title, who's in it, who directed it, just so I'm a little aware. Fine, who wrote it, and then just let me sit because that's when I find myself having the best time at films. That's when I'm I'm more surprised and appreciative of of the product than if I had expectations. But I don't. But I also would. I'm okay if I have certain expectations and they're they're flipped because then you you're able to surprise me. But then in the same breath, I'll come out and say, well, it's not what I expected. Sometimes, you know, so it's it's hard mm-hmm. to kind of find that balance because I find myself fighting on on both sides of the line. That's an interesting observation. It's certainly different than when I don't know how old you guys are, but you know, when I was growing up, it was a very different thing. There was no internet. And like you could read, you could choose to read the reviews of a new movie in the paper or not. Right. And, and nine times out of 10, I decided what I would go to see based on the poster. (laughs) That was it. It's like, what an awesome poster. I want to go see this movie. Right. There, there wasn't really a lot of movie advertising on television back then. There was barely any on the radio. It was all in the newspaper coming next week, you know, and there'd be a really cool teaser graphic in the newspaper. And that that's the way I experienced movies originally. Now, just because of what you're saying, I I couldn't agree more because I'll do a blackout. If I don't see a movie immediately, like that Soderbergh film, I like watched it as soon as it was streaming. Yeah, like, like, this, I have to be watching this like in the first 10 seconds of it being on air, right? <laughs> but, and, and then I, it didn't matter what anybody said about it. I, I got to experience it for myself. In other cases, I'll wait. I'll wait two years to see a movie until all the chatter dies down because it, it really has no influence on me whatsoever. You know, I mean, I waited so long to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I just, I, I couldn't stand the crossfire of all of this stuff and people to, and it's like, they're going to spoil it for you, you know? So it took me a long time to just black out, go see the movie, you know, which I liked very much, uh, you know, without, and I, and none of it was spoiled for me. It was all fresh when I saw it. So that was good. I really wonder how you would sell like say the silent partner just got moved into modern times, like say, like this this whole project just frozen in time, somehow it aligns and it was released in 2019 or 2021. I really wonder how they would sell it. And even in that, like how much they would spend to make it. Because- Well, what's interesting, here, here's the thing is these days, I think the first question they would ask, whether it was Netflix or Amazon, sorry, uh, they'd say, uh, can we turn this into a series? Ooh. Right? I mean, yeah. that's, and, and oh, I see. So like this guy, it's a cat and mouse thing that goes over eight or 10 episodes because I I really, I'm sure they would ask that. And, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. There are shows that where the themes rate that. And then there are ones that are like, this is a one-off. If you, you know, yeah. this story will support 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's it. 
I mean, do not turn this into a series. I was so excited when I saw that, uh, as my wife said, let's watch, um, it's called I'm Your Woman with Rachel Brosnan. And she said, oh, yeah. you, you would like this, you know? And I, and I just said, oh, I'm not in the mood for another series. And she says, no, it's it's a movie. It's 90 minutes. I said, let's do it. Let's watch <laughs> this. It's great. It's like made for cable and it's 90 minutes long. You know, that's why I like this. Yeah, that's why I like this Soderbergh movie so much because it like I can watch this in one sitting. I don't have to commit to like weeks and weeks. You know, having said that though, I mean, I love, you know, Better Call Saul and you know, all that stuff is is just fantastic, you know. Uh but I I don't want to have to go make that kind of commitment for everything. No. Yeah. But I'd be curious, but who knows, maybe we've talked about the silent partner so much, somebody's going to say, hey, let's look into remaking this film. What's well, the thing? I mean, I know we have to let you go, so I, we won't spend too much time on it, but it's definitely one of those films where you'd have to, I mean, look, I don't want anybody to remake the exact thing shot for shot, but you'd have to do a lot of tinkering because Bang Protocols now and what's available now will be a lot different. So you either have to place it back in the day or you got to yeah. make a lot of changes. Yeah, which is which is good, because I think that's I love it when that happens, you know, when you have to account for cell phones and all this kind of stuff. I actually think it makes if you're going to remake films, it's it's better to update them than it is to set them back then, because you're only going to lose in comparison to the original version. <laughs> but when you actually adapt it and make it different, you know, like like. um uh, David Siegel and Scott McGee redid uh, The Reckless Moment, which is a really terrific noir film from 1949 about a, about a mother who tries to protect her daughter who has uh, been seduced by this scoundrel and he's going to blackmail her and all this stuff. And, and they redid it and updated it and put Tilda Swinton in the lead, but gave her a gay son instead of this straight daughter. And it, and it was a really, really smart decision because it just, uh, it, it brought extra layers to the plot and uh, it, it, it worked. It really worked as a remake uh, and, it, and it was valuable in a way that some remakes really aren't. And then those filmmakers went on to make another modern noir that I'm obsessed with, The Suture. Suture, yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about all of those some, some coming days soon. Yeah, Suture is really a leap you know yeah. because of the the little trick they pull the little visual stunt they pull in that movie uh that throws some people all the way what was the remake well, the remake though of the Tilda Swim, that was was the deep what's the deep inside the deep what end was the deep end was the, the, end. That the, was the title it. of the Tilda Swinton movie yeah. yeah I couldn't remember the end for some reason <laughs> well the deep is something totally different <laughs> that's, that's Jacqueline Bissett and Nick Nolte <clears throat> or for me, that's Jacqueline Bissett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about all this. It's fantastic to have you here. Oh, that, it was a great pleasure. There were so many. You guys gave me a list of films to choose from, and it was so interesting. I, you know, I picked a bunch. We have, we have we have a four hundred oh, yeah. somewhat list of films. So there's more on there that we didn't even bring up. But like we were trying to narrow it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and of course, you are always welcome to come back for anyone that you want, because honestly, this has just been a, an absolute delight. Uh, where can 
the good folks of the world find your work besides the dark corners of Noir Alley? <laughs> uh, well, if they're interested in getting the new book, the revised and expanded Dark City, uh, you know, they can go to the Evil Empire or they can go to the TCM store, or my preference is they buy it through Larry Edmonds bookstore in Hollywood. Yep. In which, in which case you may very well get a signed copy because I've already signed over 500 copies for them. Oh, saw the photos uh, from that too. That was that huge stack. Yeah. Yeah. That was really, really fun. And I haven't even done an official signing there yet, which is still to come. Once we get this COVID stuff under, yeah. under control, then I'll actually go there and we'll do a, a big event. You know, maybe we'll show a movie or something and, and do it at a theater. But um, th that's my preference is that you get it from an independent bookseller. Absolutely. Well, Eddie, thank you so much again. Uh, stay oh, safe. Absolutely. My pleasure, guys. It's great fun. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Mueller from Turner Classic Movies, another guest that will, we like to give all of our guests here at Overdue Rentals the sort of encouragement, you know, come back anytime you want. But Eddie is the second guest that I can think of that has had just such a zest for our, such a, a, a hunger for our list. That I'm thinking we might have to put it up to a poll and see if we release the list to the public, like, because maybe a little bit of pomp and circumstance around us, you know, every now and then we throw out a poll to get people going, but we'll, we'll talk, that's, that's secondary to the fact that thank you, you motherfucker, thank you me. for me. introducing me, for finally giving me the light under my ass to see <laughs> the silent partner, because holy fuck, Christopher Plummer. Big yeah. by daddy energy because this you like you see him with women but come on the way he teases Elliot Gould there is a there there is a whole other realm that we could discuss about how he 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 I think he just fucks anything yeah I mean look I don't, I don't possible. I, we we did spoilers in the discussion you know we mentioned that there's a beheading you know we didn't necessarily the the specifics behind it because that's something that I think people need to see. And, and as, as far as gruesome, and it's because it's not like, granted, for people who can't take gore, it's not like super gory, but you do see things you didn't expect to see, I guess you can call it. But so I won't mention other yeah. things too. Like I won't mention specifics about other things that happen in the film, but I, I did, I always found it very curious, not curious, but I found it very interesting that, you know, it's, it's also, it's interesting too, because in my mind, the character is Harry Reichel, who's Christopher Plummer, because it's actually only listed in the credits as Reichel. Yeah. And then I actually watched it when I had it watching it this time, the subtitles are on. And when he attacks the prostitute, when he's leaving, somebody says, Jesus, Frank, you really did it this time. So I don't know if the character's name is Frank Reichel, because the only places I could find, like if there was Wikipedia or something like that, everybody thinks lists, lists him as Harry Reichel. And I don't know if I had it wrong this whole time. I'm not sure. Yeah. But what I found interesting was, is that he's, he's kind of, I always found him as this kind of, they're also painting as like androgynous character. because he's, he's wearing eyeliner all the time. He is and, so fucking hip. Like this is Christopher Plummer at his, his movements. It's yeah, <laughs> just a fucking bad cat with massive energy. And I just, uh, I mean, growing up as a kid, you know, or even just as a modern film fan, it's like I knew Christopher Plummer from obviously Sound of Music. Uh, plays a great villain in Up. He's fantastic in Knives Out as like you know the sort of he's he's a sort of a mix between like a loving father figure and also a very stern sort of cold bastard 
Hmm. And maybe the most villainous I'd seen him besides up was Chancellor Gorkin, not Chancellor Gorkin. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on his character name in uh, Star Trek VI. Oh, like, I don't even know his character name, but I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Beautiful yeah. fucking Klingon villain. And then I go and watch this. And <laughs> this is probably the most, I, I had heard that Christopher Plummer was a piece of work in this movie. Yeah. Because when he had sat, when he had passed recently, a lot of people mentioned Chang, General Chang. That was him in a uh, Star Trek. I, a lot of people had mentioned Silent Partner as like this a role in the the list of movies that he should be known for. And I liked hearing about it. And I hear Elliot Gould and Noir, and it's like, ooh, okay, I'm I'm gonna have to check that out. And then this finally just did it for me. Yeah, this he he's it's it's one of those things where, and again, I, I mentioned it when we talked to Eddie. You know, like, because I, again, I've done a few of these lists before where it's like your top five villains of all time. And I, and I always mention, you know, because people always think of Hannibal Lecter, Darth Vader, all these things are very popular. And so, and granted, a lot of times I think of things that are more outside, not because it's not my list are not just Christopher Plummer as, 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 as Reichel, because like my, my top is like, uh, is, um, is, uh, um, Robert Duvall in, in network, you know. <laughs> <laughs> as, I was as, just thinking about that the other today. I was just thinking, of, like, for some random reason, his dialogue was rolling around my, in my head. It's like I have this big, fat, big titted hit. But that, but that's the thing. That's the thing about Christopher Plummer in this movie. He is constantly overbearing in nature to scare whoever he's talking to. But he's calm. He's cool. He's like, even when he's getting angry and not even yelling, he's kind of whisper yelling at you. He's he's some he's so collected in a way that is scare that is much scarier because you, you can see yourself passing this guy in the street not thinking anything. You can see yourself maybe being his friend and then touching the wrong side of him, and you're just like you realize that you've unleashed a lion. He's a total fucking shark. But without without the without the massive overblown anger. There's like one scene where he raises his voice in this movie, and that's that. It's the the beheading, the prelude to the beheading scene. And thinking about how Daryl Duke is the director, correct? Correct. Yeah. Thinking about how you guys had said Daryl Duke didn't like the violence, so Curtis Hanson might have directed that himself. That violence being thrown in there is the right amount and at the right time because. Any other, like you, you go to like the, the the dime store version of this movie, or maybe even just the, the the more blockbuster version of this movie. He's Pacinoing this up. He would totally just be yelling, and like he yeah. would see him like that's the that would be a chewing scenery performance. It's yeah. Everybody in the silent partner is using a knife and fork and is eating the scenery efficiently but effectively. <laughs> It is literally safe and fort, especially Christopher Plummer and especially Elliot Gould, man. No, yeah, no, because ah. like you said, they needed the beheading because you only really have that scene of him at the beginning with the prostitute that shows how kind of sick he is. Yeah, you get the point of it and you see how menacing he is when, when he's interacting with Elliot, not even with Elliot Gould, like toward Elliot Gould at that point, but you still don't know the wretchedness to it to to its extent until you see that and yeah you maybe you could have done it without showing certain things but like that's like that's like that's one of those scenes that like even horror fans you know like they don't know about and yeah it's wow. not going to be like a horror film but that that's got to go in the you know again i know people there are certain people who can't deal with violence to a certain point and i 
I'm not going to say force them to watch it, but like it, it kind of needed to be there. I think it needed, yeah. it needed, it needed that push. Also, can we just talk about how Reichel is dispatched with the most Canadian kill shot ever? Like the guard just kind of like, it's very, it's like a, it's like a slower thing where he's like, it's measured, drawn out. It's almost like he's really, really sorry that he has to do this, but he does it anyway. Yeah. But it just, I just looked at him. It's like, yep. That if you had any doubt that this film was a Canadian production, besides the fact that John Candy is right there. And besides the well, fact that it looks very Toronto. Well, that's the or, thing. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but you know, that's the thing. And I, I, so I talked about it because I, I did go to school in Toronto and I know I'm not as big as a Canadian as people who lived and grew up in Toronto, but it's the idea of like, it opens up on the Eaton Center and the Eaton Center for people who were, even have just visited Toronto, is not gonna really mean much to them. But if you've lived in Toronto, you know what the Eaton Center is. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it's like, it's so Canadian. <laughs> I was also gonna say like, and, I, and I'm not, you know, more spoilers, but I almost wish, like, I understand they had to wrap the story on the Elliot Gould side of things, but I really would have loved the movie to end on, he gave me the bank's money. What'd you expect them to do? <laughs> that is just, there is such, there are such sly punchlines in this movie that the sense of humor is as sharp as that aquarium when it's broken. Oh, because- hey, two, ah, ah, Spoilers. <laughs> We already warned spoilers. And plus, we, they, they don't get to put two and two. Well, the audience may put two and two together. No, no, no. <laughs> watch the film, thanks to the suggestion from Overdue Rentals. But anyway, that is one of my favorite punchlines in this movie besides, oh, so what would you do with that money? Oh, I'd put it in the bank. Uh, yeah, yeah. And just, yeah. ah! Well, it's and another thing that was interesting, I don't know if this was a conscious influence or not hmm. on the team that I believe it was John Cleese and I, I forget who he co-wrote A Fish Called Wanda with. But pa this pa felt- pa Palin co-wrote it, didn't Was it? Palin? I, I, I wasn't sure so. it was Palin. I'm gonna look it up now because now I'm going crazy. I'm pretty sure they, the two of them co-wrote it. But this felt like a darker version of or the darker inspiration for A Fish Called Wanda, especially the fact that Elliot Gould keeps the, the, uh, the aquarium. You have the morally ambiguous uh, female character who is playing both sides, and you know, ha and and even just you know her her visit to the jail, reassuring yeah. her boyfriend. Oh yeah, no, I like you better. Yeah. <laughs> Charles it's, Crichton actually, he recorded with Charles Crichton. My my mistake. right, right. But th it, this just felt like maybe they saw this and took some cues from it, maybe subconsciously, because you. I swear you could put these two together, and it's like. Zero hour versus, I oh don't no, fail safe versus Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> or fail safe versus air, well, not fail versus, I was going to say zero, zero hour, hour versus an airplane. airplane. <laughs> so, that, that, I, I made the zero hour part of it. <laughs> um, I fucked it up, folks. I'm sorry. Well, no, but hey, we got there. We got there at the end. Exactly. There's also, you know, other we didn't really get to talk about also is like that idea that, you know, when, when I'm first watching the film, I'm so engrossed. The first time I saw it, and I was young when I saw this. Um, I'm so engrossed <laughs> in the original, you know, in, you know, the Miles Reichel part of the story. And I'm not so much paying attention to like the romancey things and stuff like that. So as a kid, I may be less, um, I may be bored by them at times or so, you know, something like that. Yeah. But it's funny watching, again, watching it even now, because you, again, I was talking about that idea of like, right, it goes from Reichel terrorizing him to all of a sudden him following. And it's, it, you're getting to the point, it's like, none of these people know who each other is. So like all that side story, and like literal side story, it's like almost happening in the background between John Candy and the other teller and, yeah. and, and Susanna York and the boss and everything like that. It's meant to be another shadow of going like, there's always something going on behind the scenes 
and 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 people are not who you think they are and it's yeah. just, it just it's just another little puzzle piece that fits into it well even just you you go back to that john candy storyline and i feel sorry for that guy because you know they're they're getting married because she's uh, in the family way and you uh, louise is the character's name yeah. because i made a note because when she first pops up in this movie She's wearing these wild t-shirts, like yeah, bankers yeah. do it with interest or penalty for early withdrawal. And then later on, it's like she dresses up as a normal bank employee. So maybe she was doing it for like some sort of uh, promotion in the bank or something, you know? Probably, it pro you're probably right, yeah. I can't remember what it even said now, but you're probably right. But also, Eddie mentions how this is a Christmas movie. It's also an Easter movie because there are sequences that take place in Easter. Did it? Like at one point, there's that, like, is it that long of a period from when it from when the robbery happens? There's one point where it's like, put all your eggs in our basket, and it has like the eggs and everything. It's like, wow, I was kind of this. This movie really does take its time. Like this is a the definition of a long con because this movie starts at Christmas and then it, moves on. It didn't even feel that long. Uh, if you do want to see the Silent Partner, I know I mentioned earlier that you can access it on Canopy. But as Matthew has pointed out to me, not all library systems have Canopy. Uh, I believe you can buy that. There is a Blu-ray out from Kino Lorber Classics. And I think you can digitally rent the film. Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah, I believe you can rent it digitally. But even if you just know a friend that has a copy, go and, and, and rent The Silent Partner. Watch The Silent Partner. Love The Silent Partner. But, and, and don't let the thumbnail fool you into thinking it's a Reservoir Dogs meets Ocean's Eleven sort of thing. This is its own thing. And the Kino Lorber art is much better because I think it's a vintage poster. Or let it fool you. I don't know. As long as you enjoy the movie. But yeah, go enjoy it because it really is made to be enjoyed. And as you can hear from my, my, my new christening into this fandom, thanks to Matthew, we're both going to be at Silent Partner Con next year. <laughs> uh, we'll have to fight over who gets to be Miles, who gets to be Reichel this year, but you know, and and whether or not it's the the Reichel variant from the finale. But I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I can pull it off. But though, <laughs> Michael, where can people find us? Oh, well, that's a very good question to ask, Matthew. It's like we're promoting a show here, a brand, if you will. Um, we, the good folks at Overdue Rentals, are on Twitter at oh, Rentals Overdue. On Facebook and TikTok at Overdue Rentals. On Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. And of course, should you want to drop us a line, send us your suggestions, or just send us your own love letters for uh, $48,350 <laughs> from the bank, send us your notes at Overdue Rentals at gmail.com. I think I got the amount right. I could be wrong, but you know, I just thought of a number. And of course, Make sure you cross off the silent partner from your overdue rentals list, and then go out and get your own copy of the revised and expanded edition of Eddie Muller's Dark City. The Lost World of Film Noir. And if you do want to catch Eddie in his televised form, you can watch Noir Alley on Turner Classic Movies every Saturday at midnight Eastern. Uh, that seems like the perfect time, honestly. When else would you watch a noir film? Uh, if we ever have him back for Eddie Coyle, I'll have to tell him the story about how I first saw Eddie Coyle. Or, or we get we get him back with his with his good friend James Elroy for the confidential. Hey, bye bye everybody. Christmas show. Bye bye. <laughs>